Welcome to the Vineyard Northridge Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our senior pastor, Neil Haney. For more information about our church, visit our website at vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge. This is exciting to me this morning. This is the, the last sermon in a sermon, a very short three-part series called Mind Transformation. And, uh, you know, I started the series two weeks ago, and I'm, I'm wrapping it today. And, you know, when, when you only do a three-week series, and, you know, we, we're talking about three verses of Scripture, um, you really want to kind of bring this thing to a, a, a good conclusion. You want to you kind of like, what is the point of this whole thing? And so this morning, uh, I just, I just um, I want to deliver to you what I believe is God's heart on what it looks like to have a transformed mind. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the scripture in uh, Romans chapter 12 to set the context here. Uh, Dennis and I preached through for two and a half months the gospel of God, which is basically Romans 1 through 8. And then um, Paul chases a rabbit, a very necessary rabbit, for his audience for three chapters. And then he picks up again in Romans 12 with what begins to be the application of what he said about the gospel of God in the first eight chapters. And so I, I love how Dennis pointed out last week that God always presents the gospel and, our, and his love for us and our acceptance in him and all that Christ has done for us and who we are in Christ and the fact that we're righteous in Christ, not, not according to our own works and what we do, but according to what he's done for us. And we're children of God and all those wonderful things that have to do with the good news about who we are in Christ before he ever talks about living the Christian life. Because the Christian life should flow out of grace, should flow out of the gift of righteousness that God gives us in Christ, should, should flow out of our sins being forgiven our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ to live in the Spirit, not under the law. And so, and so Paul is doing that very thing in Romans 12. And so I'm going to read the Scripture, and then um, I'm going to explain what I believe is God's Word for this morning to us about how to live in a transformed mind and what it means to have a transformed mind. Verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything I've told you, in view of the gift of righteousness, of the blood of Jesus that washes away your sins, in view of the fact that you, you died with Christ, you are raised with him to live a new life in the Spirit, in view of, in, in Romans 8, in, in view of the fact that you're led by the Spirit, that the Spirit cries out through you, Abba, Father, in view of the fact that you are heirs of God, children of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, in view of the fact that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us, in view of the fact that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, that He's always interceding on our behalf to God, the Father, in view of the fact that there is no condemnation, no judgment from anybody, anything in the universe against us. There is, there is nothing that can bring a charge against us as God's children because God has justified us in Christ. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. In view of all those things, he says, three things. 
Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's, we, we've talked about that. And then last week, Dennis talked about not being conformed to... So, so uh, let me just read this through. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, which is what I just described. I get a little ahead of myself. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and, and proper worship. We're, we're to offer our bodies to God as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And do not conform to the pattern of this world. And we've said several times now that being conformed to the, the pattern of this world is living to find meaning, value, and purpose in this life, in this world, independent of and in rebellion against God. So, so find, trying to find meaning, value, and purpose in this life, independent of God and living in rebellion against him. That's the pattern of this world. Don't live like that. Dennis talked about that last week. But be transformed. Let your lives be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And we've gone into that. I talked about that a lot the first Sunday, the first uh, two weeks ago when I preached. And I talked about the fact that the truth sets us free and lies bind us. And so we need to know the truth. And, and I suggested that you read Ephesians, one chapter a day for six days, you know, Monday through Saturday, and then read Romans 3 through 8, and just do that over and over and over again until you get the gospel, the good news, the, the, the new covenant so fixed in your mind and heart that you can't be moved off of that truth that sets you free. Then you will be able to test and approve what, is God, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, this morning's message basically is this. A transformed mind trusts in God. That's how you know your mind has been transformed, because you trust in God. Now, I'm, I'm going to basically uh, play the role of an attorney this morning. I'm going to try to present a case before you that I believe this is God's word to us, and this is really what is the evidence. The, the evidence of a transformed mind is that we trust in God completely, with all our hearts, completely, totally, and without exception. There are things that the word tells us about God that we either believe or we don't believe that will determine whether or not we can trust him. And trusting God is ultimately everything. It's everything. It's what, made, it's what made Abraham righteous at the beginning of his journey with God, and it's what led him to be willing to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah at the end of his life, or towards the end of his life. God is powerful. God is good. God is love. God is holy, which means he cannot sin against you. He cannot do anything wrong. And God is faithful. And I have scriptures for every one of those things. I'm not going to take the time this morning to even cite the verses. But there, it's in the word. Let me tell you, it's in this book. From Genesis to all the way through to the, the end of Revelation. But I want to make a statement this morning, a very bold statement that I believe is true with all my heart. And, and it may shock you a little bit, 
But I believe this. If we can't trust God in everything, we can't trust God in anything. Think about that for a minute. If we can't trust God in everything, we can't trust God in anything. But I believe because God is powerful, God is good, God is love, God is holy, God is faithful. And he's made us promises. And he's given us some guarantees of his goodness and his love. That we can trust God in anything and everything. But you know, um, over the last three months... And over the last three years, beginning with, I mean, you know, you can go far back as you want to, but let's just start in March of 2020. Up until this very week, you and I have seen untold tragedies, seemingly meaningless, random tragedies, acts of violence, deaths that are inexplicable. Starting for me three months ago, one of my very best pastor friends in the vineyard, he pastored the vineyard in Marysville for 30-something years, Steve Wood. His, his only child, his 35-year-old daughter that he adored, was walking with her two preteen children on a road in front, a two-lane highway in front of her house. A dude in a pickup truck got distracted, maybe he was on his cell phone, who knows, ran over her right in front of her kids right in front of Steve's house. He ran out and held her as she died in his arms. What in the world? How, how, how can we trust God in the face of that? A month ago, I did a, a funeral for a 24-year-old girl who died in her bedroom below her parents' bedroom from an asthma attack. 24 years old. Perfect health otherwise. Her mom at the funeral was inconsolable. She held on to her casket. She just kept saying, if only I could do that day over again. I would be there. They didn't hear her fighting for her life until it was too late to revive her, to bring her back. Just random, meaningless kind of stuff. Monday, Dennis and Marina and I went to the funeral of Rachel uh, Nerger, the wife of the pastor at Spring Hill, 29-year-old mom of two, died of complications from surgery, didn't recover, left behind a four-year-old and a two-year-old. How can you explain that? Where is God in that? Why didn't he step in? Why didn't he heal her? Why, 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 why? We don't know. Guys, I tell you, there are things that I don't understand. But I will tell you this. I still trust God. Tomorrow, there will be a huge funeral in this city for a 41-year-old deputy hired by Gene Kelly years ago who responded to a 911 call and was shot by the very person that he went there to help. Multiple times shot and killed. How do you explain this? If God is powerful, if God is good, if God is love, if God is holy, if God is faithful, then how can these things happen? And how can we trust him? How? 
Back in 1981, there was a, a rabbi by the name of Kushner who had a lifelong disease. And he was trying to, to make sense of a life lived in you know, pain and, and suffering. And he ended up writing a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he said, we know that God is supposed to be all-powerful. He's also supposed to be all-loving. But he's either one or the other. He can't be both. Because if he's all-powerful, bad things wouldn't happen to good people. And if he's all-loving, he would never stand back and let it happen. Because he's all-powerful. So he's got to be one or the other. And because I've concluded that God does love us, then he must be loving but not powerful. He's just too weak. He's just too, too um, powerless to really help us in our struggles. Well, you know, that, that's a conclusion that you could draw from looking at the things I just described, right? But there's, there's something else at play here. There's something else going on here. Jesus himself said, in this world you will experience trouble, tribulation. But he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Do you realize that 365 times, one for every day of the year, God says, do not fret, do not be anxious, do not worry, do not fear, do not be discouraged, do not despair. It's actually breaking a command of the Lord. I mean, it's not, not like he gets mad at you if, you if you struggle with this stuff. But he does tell us that we don't have to live that way. In fact, Jesus says, I'll give you my peace that the world can't even give. We can live in joy and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit because God is who he is. And he has promised us what he has promised us. And this is it. And when Paul is saying, be renewed, or be transformed by the renewing of your mind in view of God's mercy that, we, that I just outlined in the gospel, there is a scripture that to me is the anchor of my soul in face of all the things that I just described. And it's Romans 8.28. And I want to look at this in the New American Standard. It's the best translation of this verse. It's the most literal and it says this, this is the anchor for my soul. This is why I trust God. Paul says, and we know. That's a foregone conclusion to Paul. And he says it should be the foregone conclusion of every Christian, every Christ follower, that we know this, we know this for a fact, that God causes all things. Now, if we stop there, then I, I can't trust God. I really can't. There's, cert there's certain Christians that believe that God causes everything. Everything. Sin, death, tragedy, that God causes all that stuff. I don't believe that. I believe that all that stuff came in because God gave human beings a choice. And we chose, and our, our first father chose the wrong way. He chose the wrong, he made a bad choice. He disobeyed God, he didn't trust him, and he ended up sinning. But that's not where it stops. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. All things, the good, the bad, the ugly, 
to work together for the good of those to those who are called who love him. I'm sorry, for the good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you love God, then you're called according to his purpose. And let me just tell you his purpose. In fact, I want to get a little help from Watchman Nee in his book, uh, The Normal Christian Life. He says this, the purpose of God in creation embraces far more than Adam ever came to enjoy. He blew it before he got to where we are now. What was that purpose, he says? God wanted to have a race of human beings whose members, whose body was gifted with a spirit whereby communion would be possible with himself, God who is spirit. And that race, possessing God's own life, would cooperate in securing his ultimate purpose, and that was to live with him through eternity, with him in our midst, us as his children, him as our God and Father, and the bride and to be the bride of Christ. Amen. That's it, man. That's it right there. This world and this life is riddled with things that we can't explain, with tragedies that seem meaningless and inexplicable and random, and it just, it just seems like there's no explaining it at all. And yet, this scripture, this very scripture right here, gives me all I need to hold on to God and say, you know what, God? Because I love you, and because I'm called according to your eternal purpose, <laughs> I know that you're causing all things to work together for my good. You know, Wes mentioned Bill Johnson, uh, and I was afraid he was going to steal my thunder there for a moment, but he actually enhanced what I wanted to say about this. Bill Johnson is one of my living heroes, pastored at Bethel for many, many decades, and then handed it off to his son, and uh, I don't know who's the senior pastor there now, but Bill is still the apostle of that church. And three days after his wife died, he, he said, I want to preach and his good friend, one of the pastors on staff, Chris Valton, tried to talk him out of it. And Bill said, no, I have some things that I need to say to the church. And he said, you know, Wes said it well. We, in heaven, will never get to worship God and to glorify him in our pain. We can only do that in this life. And he said, you know what? He said, I don't really get a vote on how this life works or what happens to me? He said, but before, and Jesus is my friend, but before Jesus was ever my friend, he was my Lord. And he gets to call the shots. And he gets to allow things to enter my life. And I will experience, and you will experience pain and disappointment and frustration and all kinds of things in this life. But I'm here to say, having lost my wife, and Bill Johnson believes in healing more than anybody ever knew. He lost his wife to cancer. And she was only in her 60s. He said, I still believe that God is good. And I will serve him the rest of my life in absolute certainty that, he, that I, I am loved by him and that he is worthy of my worship, my praise, my life. <laughs> Man, that is... 
That is trust. That is trust in the Lord. My favorite scripture in the Old Testament is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and it says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him. Know him. (laughs) Know him. And he will direct your path. He'll direct your steps. He'll navigate the, the, the map in your life and get you where you need to be. But we've got to trust him with all our hearts. With all our hearts. And we can do that because we know that he causes all things to work together for our good. Because we love him and we're called according to his purpose. So having a renewed mind means trusting the Lord, trusting God, because he causes all things to work together for our good. I, man, I had, have so many things to share, and I'm going to try to navigate this by the Holy Spirit, and I feel like I'm supposed to share this. So if you could go ahead and put up the two uh, Habakkuk passages real quick. There was a prophet in Israel, actually in Judah, and he, he was a watchman, a prophetic watchman, and he was watching the Babylonians rise to power, and they were evil, evil people, and they were powerful. It was the, Babylon was the most powerful nation on earth at that point, Bab- the Babylonian Empire. And at the very beginning of the book of Habakkuk, he says this. I don't know if we have the scripture up, but how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict, and conflict abounds. That's the beginning of the book. And Habakkuk and the Lord have a conversation. And this is Habakkuk's conclusion at the end of the book. Listen to this. Chapter 3, beginning with verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet... Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. The sovereign Lord is my strength. (laughs) Having a renewed mind. And Habakkuk got his mind renewed in that conversation with God. Means that we trust God with all our hearts. We trust him unequivocally. Because we know that he causes all things to work together for our good. You know, in this life, there are only two responses to anything and everything that happens to us. There is doubt that leads to unbelief, and there is faith that leads to trust. Doubt and unbelief aren't the same thing. You can doubt something, but if you dwell on that doubt long enough, it becomes unbelief. And unbelief leads to disobedience, and disobedience leads to death. With a little d. Death is simply not living in the fullness and goodness of God. 
or we live in faith that leads to trust, that leads to obedience, that leads to untold blessing in life. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve were given a choice, and they doubted God, which led to unbelief, which led to disobedience, which led to uh, death and, and every kind of, of illness and tragedy that you can imagine. But just a few chapters later, God calls Abraham, who, when God made him a promise, he believed God, he had faith in God, which ultimately led to such trust in God that when God told him to take his only son that he finally had, he had this son after 30 years of God making a promise that he would have a son, he finally at 100 years old has the son. His wife is 91. And then when the kid's like early teenager, God says, now take him up on the mountain that I'll show you and sacrifice him there to me. I mean, Abraham's son that he waited 30 years for. His life is in this son. God says that all of Abraham's descendants will be like the, the stars of the heavens and the sands of the seashore. Now he's supposed to take the son and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And do you know what? It says that Abraham rose early in the morning and took the wood, the knife, and the fire and took his son and headed to the mountain to sacrifice him there. Guys, that's trust. He wasn't there at the beginning when he had faith, but faith became such trust that he was willing to do that. And, of course, God stopped him. He didn't allow him to sacrifice his son. He gave him back to him. But those are the only two responses to, to things that happen to us in this life. Doubt that leads to unbelief, that leads to disobedience, that leads to death. Or faith that becomes trust. Trust is more personal. Trust is more thorough. It's more all-encompassing. It leads to obedience and leads to life. I can't, um, I can't understand why Abraham's descendants didn't act like Abraham. <laughs> they, they didn't have the faith and the trust in God that he had. I don't understand why. When God was cutting a covenant, making a covenant with Abraham... He said, while Abraham was in this trance-like state, as God was giving him the vision of the covenant that he was making with him, he said, your ancestor, or your, your descendants, I'm sorry, your descendants will be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, and then I will bring them out with great wealth, and I will give them this promised land that you're living in right now. And he kept his promise. Abraham died, and Isaac died, and... And Jacob had Joseph, who became the vice president of, of Egypt. And, and the 70 people that were in the family of Jacob went down, Abraham's descendants, went down to Egypt and lived in the land of Goshen and became millions. In fact, they were outpopulating the Egyptians. And a pharaoh who didn't know anything about Joseph, who was a trusted servant of, of the pharaoh at the, the time that they went down to Egypt, he didn't know anything about that. But he saw a people that were becoming so, so populous and so big and so great and so blessed that he became threatened by that, and he put them in slavery and killed, killed a bunch of their children, their male children, so they couldn't continue to populate. 
And for 400 years, they lived in the land of Egypt, just like God told Abraham. And, and, and God sent a deliverer, Moses, to bring them out, to bring them out of Egypt and to take them into the promised land that he had promised, just like he promised Abraham he would do. He's a faithful God. He's a powerful God. He's able to do what he says he'll do. He's able to do what he says he'll do. And so, ten plagues later, <laughs> God shows Pharaoh that he needs to let the Israelites go. And Moses leads them out from Egypt and right to the edge of the Red Sea to cross over to go into the Promised Land. And Pharaoh, who is representative of Satan and the slavery that's representative of sin, decides that he, he, he changes his mind and he sends the Egyptian army after the Israelites to bring them back and put them back in slavery. And so they reach the Israelites right at the edge of the Red Sea. So the Israelites are pinned, God's people are pinned between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. They're, they're, they're gone. They're dead. And God causes this this barrier, this divine supernatural barrier between the Egyptian army and the people of Israel all through the night and pre- prevents them from being destroyed or, or taken back into slavery by the Egyptian army. And God tells Moses to strike the water with his staff that he performed all these ten plagues with. He strikes, go, go back and read it. Exodus is a great book. You should read that book. Moses strikes the water of the Red Sea. The sea parts the, the ground becomes dry between them and the other side of the sea. And all night and all morning, they, they cross over on dry ground. And as soon as the last Israelite reaches the other side, that supernatural barrier between the Egyptian army and the Israelites is removed. And they pers- uh, the Egyptian army goes right into that, the middle of that sea after the, the Israelites. And they get, they get right in the middle, and God just brings the water right back over them. If you go online, you can actually see Egyptian chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea. It's incredible. It happened. And you know, it was less than a two-week journey. Some people say seven days. Last week, Dennis said 11 days. But from the eastern side of the Red Sea to the southernmost part of the Promised Land was, was, about, was less than a two-week journey on foot. And God brings them right to, to the southern gate of the promised land that he promised to give to Israel as their inheritance. They promised to Abraham. <laughs> but they didn't go in. I don't understand. I do not understand this at all. But here's what happened. Now in Deuteronomy, as, as the descendants of the people that died in the wilderness, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, having not entered the land of, of, of promise. Anyone 21 years and older didn't enter in except for Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that went in with. So, so when, when Moses gets to the, to the southern gate, it's called Kadesh Barnea. That was the southernmost part of, of the promised land. The people want him to send in spies. So he sends 12 spies into the land to spy it out and to bring back a report. And here's what happens. Moses is recounting this now as they're standing on the, 
western side of the, uh, the Jordan River about to go into the promised land after 40 years later. Okay, here's what he says about the spies taking with them some of the fruit of the land. By the way, this is uh, Deuteronomy um, 1, verses 25 and following, and I don't know if we have it, and it doesn't matter. Just listen. Take, taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported. Now, this is what Joshua and Caleb said. They had a, it says that they had a different spirit than the other ten spies. It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us, that God is giving us. Do you hear that? That's what God had promised. That's what he was doing. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of your God. See, doubt leads to unbelief, leads to disobedience. You grumbled in your tents and said, listen to this. This is just unbelievable. The Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Now think about that for a minute. How much easier would it have been on God just to let Pharaoh do that? Why would he have to go through all the trouble of all those ten plagues that happened to all the people of Egypt that didn't happen to the people of of Israel while they were in the same land in, in Egypt? The whole deal with the ten plagues, bringing them through the Red Sea on dry ground, collapsing the sea on their enemies, just to bring, us, bring them two weeks later to the, to the southern gate of the promised land that he promised to give them because he hated them and wanted to destroy them. How much easier would it have been just to let Pharaoh do that? I mean, he'd already started with their, with their kids. Why not just let Pharaoh finish them off? Why go to all that trouble? Come on. Are you kidding me? But doubt... Doubt leads to unbelief, and unbelief leads to disobedience. You rebelled against the command of your Lord. You grumbled in your tents. The Lord hates us. The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls to the sky. And Joshua and Caleb said, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way until you reached this place. But in spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. That is the great sin, by the way. That is the great sin. That is the sin of the human race. You did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on, on your journey. In the fire by night and cloud by day to search out places for you to camp to show you the way to go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and swore solemnly, no one from this evil generation will see the land I swore to give your ancestors. And they all died in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb and those who are 20 years old and younger and their children. Guys, we have a promise. And the promise stands that God causes all things. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who, are, who love him and who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, that's you and me, he's known us for all eternity. We were in his mind and heart for all eternity. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son because his eternal purpose is that he wants children, he wants sons and daughters, and he wants a bride for his, his son, Jesus you're sons of God and the bride of Christ. I don't know how that all works out. It doesn't even make sense. 
But God understands it. And we can trust him. Even in the face of inexplicable tragedy and things that happen in our lives that we are, have no control of and it seems like God has, has left us, we can still trust him. We can still believe that right there. And I want to I close with a story. In 2009, the day before Easter, April 11th, 2009, Edie Young and her daughter Hannah and her son Kenan and Hannah's boyfriend, and I have his name somewhere here. What was his name? Adam, Adam that's right. Um, Hannah's senior year. They were heading back from a week-long visit with um, relatives in Cookville, Tennessee. Hannah was driving the car, and Hannah decided to take the scenic route home through central Kentucky. It's beautiful. I've been on that very road many, many times when I lived in Danville, going back and forth from, to see my parents and going to Nashville. And it's a beautiful, beautiful route. There was a, going through this little little town, little logging town. There was a there was a, traffic in the other lane was was stopped, and Hannah was in the northbound lane. The southbound lane was blocked. This twenty one year old kid in a pickup didn't didn't see the the cars. He was distracted, probably on his cell phone, whatever. Distracted, didn't see the car stopped. Hit the back end of the car in front of him that was stopped going 55 miles per hour, went airborne and landed on the driver's part of, of the car that they were in and, and cr basically crushed Hannah. Edie reached over to feel for a pulse, and there was none. Keenan and Adam were fine in the back seat. Edie got beat up pretty bad from, the, from, from some of the impact. But Hannah was gone. In fact, when she felt Hannah's pulse... She heard the Lord say, she's with me. They're right here, guys. They could have said, God, why would you let that random, ridiculous thing happen to my daughter, our daughter? We're done with you. You couldn't even protect my daughter. Why, why didn't we take the other route? Why, why, why? They could have asked a thousand questions. They could have shaken their fist in heaven and said, God, you did not protect her. We're done with you. Or they could have said something like this. You know, we're going we're gonna to be Christians. We're going to keep going. We're going to go to church. We'll, we'll pay our tithes. We'll, you know, whatever. But we're just going to get through this life. We're just going to sit down in our grief and just say, you know what, God, you didn't do anything for Hannah. We're not doing anything for you. Just, you know, we still believe in you. We still love you, but we really can't trust you, and so we're just going to sit down and, and just try to somehow get through this life with the grief that we're in. But that's not what they did. The next day after her death, they went back to the very spot where that accident happened, and they held hands and agreed Three things. Number one, that they were forgiving that 
the man that, by the way, he died. He was killed too. But they forgave him on the spot, literally on the spot where she had died because he had been irresponsible. The second thing they did was that they took Romans 8.28 as their life verse. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. And they, they, chose, they, 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 they chose in their faith to trust God completely. And they made this, this commitment that they were not going to let Hannah's life end in vain. Like her death was not going to be in vain. One of the things that they did is they came back and they started a volleyball tournament as a fundraiser that would produce scholarships for, uh, for graduates from Emmanuel Christian Academy, Kenton Ridge, and Catholic Central. And so every year they have this Hits for Hannah fundraising um, volleyball. In fact, it's, it's what, in two weeks? August 14th. August 14th, so it's right after. And everyone's invited. The, these three teams play each other in volleyball and they, they've, they have given away $30,000 in scholarships since Hannah's death. But the day of the funeral, the day of the funeral, they weren't sitting in the back with their heads down. They were sitting on the front row of, that fun- of, the, of the church. And I was there. I saw this with my own eyes. Their hands lifted in the air, worshiping the Lord at their daughter's funeral. Worshipping their hearts out. And someone in the audience took notice of that. Do we have that video now, Wes? Let's watch the video here. Mike can tell this way better than me. My name is Mike Deladon, and this is my God story. When I was 10 years old, I lost my father to um, Hodgkin's disease. And uh, I remember coming home from school that day and getting off the bus and seeing all the cars at our house. And I knew then that when I got to the back door, uh, what the news was gonna be. And I can remember taking baby steps up the driveway uh, to make that process as long as possible because I knew what was waiting. And sure enough, when I got to the back door, um, I was told he was gone. Um, And quite honestly, I just hated God. I hate to use that word, um, but To me, any God that was good would not take somebody uh, like that. And that was pretty much my attitude for the next uh, 36 years. Um, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. My son Anthony uh, had a best friend named Adam Burns, and Adam dated a young lady named Hannah Young. And Hannah and Adam and her mom Edie and her brother Keenan were on a trip to Tennessee when a car crossed the medium and hit them head on, and Hannah was killed uh, instantly. We went to the viewing. There was a very long line at Fellowship. Um, And in that line, my fuel of hatred for God at that point just continued to grow. I kept saying to myself, how can you take a young lady um, in the prime of her life? Uh, It it just didn't make any sense. When we finally made it to the front, uh, I was, put my hand out. I told Derek I was sorry for his loss. And as I started to kind of walk away, Derek held onto my hand for another second or two. And he said, don't feel sorry. She's in a better place. And I just couldn't believe he would say that. And my stomach immediately went into knots uh, like you were going down the roller coaster. And we went through the rest of the receiving line. 
My stomach never changed. That feeling was with me all day that day. We came back for the funeral the next day. Stomach was still a mess. During the funeral worship, uh, Derek and Edie stood up and raised their hands. And I remember thinking to myself, how could somebody do that that just lost their daughter? And then it dawned on me that whatever faith they had to make them believe that strongly was something I needed to get pretty quickly. At the end of the service, uh, a guy by the name of Dan Moore, who was their athletic director at Emmanuel, said, if you felt like this was your time to get come to Christ, uh, to let him know. Um, I didn't do anything that day or the next day, but Monday morning at 8 o'clock, the first thing I did was call up Emmanuel Christian where he worked, and I got an answering machine, and I said, Mr. Moore, you had said at the funeral, if this was your time to find Christ, uh, to let you know, and I said, I believe this is my time to find Christ. Uh, two minutes later, I got a call back from Pastor Jeremy. He said, hey, let's get together for lunch, and we did. Uh, he and I and uh, Mr. Moore met. I cried the entire time. Um, Jeremy invited me to uh, church that following Sunday. I went, and I've never looked back from there. Um, I do know this. For a long time, I felt really guilty about how I came to Christ because of Hannah's death. And I told Mr. Young one day about that. And he told me, Mike, if God went to Hannah and said, I need to change some people's lives, but I need you to come with me. He said, Hannah would have said, let's go. And that's put my mind at ease since then. And that is how I came to Christ. My name is Mike Deladon, and this is my God story. It gets better. Mike is now one of the pastors on staff at Fellowship. So Hannah's death was not in vain. And Derek and Edie are also heroes in my life for their faith and their trust in him. And they're still standing on the fact that they know and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, to conform us to the image of Christ. And guys, I, I, want us to, I want us to live the rest of our lives in faith and trust in God. The rest of our lives knowing that this scripture is true. The rest of our lives living like Joshua and Caleb, like Derek and Edie, like Bill Johnson. Believing and trusting that God is worthy of our trust. That, that is the evidence of a transformed mind. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about our church, visit vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge.